You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. And today, Neil, um, I wanted to kind of get a level set on a big topic that's been kind of floating around um, and it's only going to come into clear review in the next couple of months, the General Data Protection Regulation, the GDPR. And now every time anybody says GDPR, I think the German Democratic People's Republic is coming back. <laughs> Do we need David Hasselhoff again? Um, but, that's, but that's not what it is. We're talking about exporting of people's data outside of the EU and protections and thinking around that. And this is really one of the first pieces of legislation that is trying to tackle this huge nebulous thing in, in any sort of a formal way. So. Give us a give us a sort of a a, a lowdown. How, how do you see its impacts? So, um, I guess it's it's not so much new legislation as, as I understand it. Its reformation is old, and I'm certainly not an expert on it. I have read it once. I've mm -hmm. been in lots of debates on it where you sort of ask people talk about it a lot, and then then you say, "So, who has actually read it?" and <laughs> <laughs> and you have actually spent the time to read the thing. I have spent the the, the time, but it was a while ago. Um, and I don't know. I think, okay, so th there's a history to these things. Actually, I've got this book in my hand because you mm -hmm. mentioned that this was going to come up. That's called The Assault on Privacy. Mm. It's by a guy called Arthur Miller. And it's mm -hmm. got a great quote from Ralph Nader on it. A lucid presentation of what misuse of computers is doing and can do to individual freedoms by the possession and distribution of personal information for manipulative purposes. The author warns of a new form of human slavery in an age when the computer is emerging from its infancy. So that's Ralph pretty, Nader. That's Ralph Nader quoted talking about Arthur Miller. Um, mm -hmm. The other thing about this, so you might get a little bit of a hint about the error from this book when I read uh, quotes that are on the back. Today's laser technology already makes it feasible to store a 20-page dossier on every American on a piece of tape that is less than 5,000 feet long. 20 pages on every American? My God! Less than 5,000 feet of tape. <laughs> that's, that's insane. Information <laughs> handling on a computerized basis is a low visibility operation. An individual may never discover that he is the subject of a file or be given any precise knowledge of what is in it. I mean, it's mm. it's filled with wonderful things like that, and of course, the book is published. Let's see, I just flick through. It's uh, 1984. No, it's uh, second printing, 71. I've got it in oh, hardcover. Wow. A friend gave it to me. Um, and uh, if you read it, the genesis of the book can be traced from fall 1966. Arthur Miller, I think he was in his. Uh, uh, I'm thinking his 40s. He's he's like still around now. He was a, ended mm. up as a professor at Harvard. That goes back to. Um, Actually, a lot of the origin of this legislation is much older than people are sort of realizing. Certainly in the European legislation, uh, I think it's in the early 80s, the first. Um, mm. And the, the, the term data protection is a kind of, I think, a, as I probably said on this program before, a horrible term. It's, um, so the first act was, I think, something along the lines of the, the term was more like protection of individuals with respect to their personal private data or something like that. Mm. And that's mm -hmm. early 80s. The GDPR actually goes to, I think, 1998 it was first drafted. It's, um, it's reforming the Data Protection Directive from 1995. Yeah. And it's now, it's more about um, a sort of universal implementation, which is quite hard to do in European law, I think. It's, it is my understanding. I'm not an expert. Mm -hmm. um, but just from talking to other people, that it takes a while to get something to apply universally. I think the one of the big changes is um, the fines are proportional to revenue. 
Yeah. Uh, worldwide revenue, I think, uh, is something like that, which is a significant I in terms of enforcement. And uh, but I do think, that, and it's interesting when you hear people talk about it. Um, certainly, there's a lot of different interpretations. So there's things like the right to an explanation, but um, the terminology around it. Um, if there's a significant effect on you on the decision and what an explanation is, all these sort of things I think are going to take some time to shake out. And there's actually, we just had Sandra Vokta speak in my group, who's written very interestingly on this area in terms of what explanation means. And she's been looking at counterfactuals as a way of driving that. I think there's interesting work in mm -hmm. that. But it's, it's been driving, I think, as well, a lot of the work in machine learning in this space around uh i mean what fairness is i mean there's there's there are protected categories you can't discriminate against um mm -hmm. trying to remember them all there's uh, religion race medical grounds uh sexuality i think mm -hmm. um set gender as well uh I th i'm not sure that those are the, the, that's exhaustive list but you you know so you've got to be able to demonstrate your algorithms are fair in that sense I think that the interesting thing I find about it is when I read all these things um, from the perspective of someone who creates algorithms, I just think, well, this is all stuff that I would actually really want to be able to show about my systems. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, when it comes in from the outsider's regulation, it feels like, oh, regulation, imposing stuff. But when it, if it comes from inside you as a sort of like, oh, wouldn't it be good if I could explain why certain decisions are being made like it seems like a reasonable request um and you know also if something certainly when you're focused on um the people you're trying to help uh, your customers or patients or whatever else it, it seems really really important so you know my the only the thing i tend to say about it is um that you know we should be thinking about this stuff anyway mm -hmm. um so we should we should think of it as like good darn programming reminders. No, I like it as I call it good data <laughs> practice rules. Oh, that's great. That's even better. Yeah, yeah, I just so whenever I think of GDPR, I just say good data practice rules because the the the, the mention of data protection is already it's like oh you know right yeah like is data coming becoming extinct or. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, that's, it's, it sounds wrong. It's a good data practice. A little wildlife rules. refuge for data. Yeah, and I think um, I mean we'll see how it pans out, and uh, you know, uh, I think that there's how people will address enforcement and these sort of things because up until now, as far as I've understood, this is just the Information Commissioner's Office. Um, yes. And we saw them, for example, in uh, jackets entering uh, Cambridge Analytica's offices fairly recently, um, which I thought was very American, very FBI. They had these ICO jackets on. And I'd never seen that before. And I don't think they've been, you know, in the past, I don't think they're funded to a massive extent. I don't think that they've been empowered to do large-scale investigations. So I, I suspect we'll see a lot of movement in that space in terms of how um, that's going to be done. And, and there'll be localized interpretations as well. Um, yeah, we're coming up on the implementation date, which is um, May 25th of this year. So we'll see what, what actually changes after this two-year transition period since its introduction. And I think we'll start seeing things about it. There'll be precedent set. Because actually, I've been in rooms with lawyers, uh, and uh, they don't even seem to agree on the interpretations right. as they'll be laid out. So um, 
I, I think that's their job to disagree with each other. So I don't know if that's... <laughs> I, yeah. I think it's kind of like, you know, if you ask like a room full of machine learners about some particular technical point to do with classification, they'll make it sound way more complicated than they should just because they're very, maybe, I, there would be that effect, right? Right. You know, get a room full of five machine learners and ask them about a neural network and they'll just say, <laughs> not even a neural, that's more complicated, you know, like a gistic regression, they'll probably <laughs> say 25 yes. different things. Yeah. Totally. We'll have much more about the good data practice rules coming up on the show up until the implementation date of the 25th, and I'm sure we'll continue to talk about it then. And we'll provide a link to the actual rules that are on there. We will so provide a link to the actual rules yourself. so that you, too, listener, can be the only person appearing on a panel who has actually read the rules. Amazing <laughs> stuff. I read them. I don't remember what they said, but I did read them. <laughs> I did read them. I yeah. did read them. That's the point. You'll find all that on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. So, Neil, this week's listener question on Talking Machines comes to us via Twitter. And if you've got one for Talking Machines, you can send it over to us at TLKNGMCHNS. I know Ryan still wants me to change that Twitter handle, but no, I stand firm. So can you talk about approximate inference, especially MCMC versus VI, and when they work and when they fail, the successes of VI for training probabilistic neural networks, especially VAEs, and seeming lack of MCMC in neural networks is interesting. And the, the writer says, I study MCMC-like dynamics in real brains. So let's talk about it. Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, and uh, as someone who's mainly worked in variational methods, I've thought about it a fair amount. Um, I mean, so why are we interested in doing approximate inference? Well, you know, the probabilistic modeling or the Bayesian paradigm says, well, we, we can build complex probabilistic models. Um, and then we don't have to worry about the decisions. We should sort of build a joint probability distribution over everything we're interested in. And then we can interrogate it sort of what's the probability of um, you know, the temperature tomorrow given mm -hmm. I don't know, the temperature yesterday or, or, or questions like that. But to do so involves integrating out variables in the system um, and variational inference. And MCMC are two different techniques. Um, so I think MCMC goes back to um, the Metropolis uh, algorithm, I think. Um, Metropolis, mm. paper by Metropolis, Metropolis-Hastings we talk about. And I think mm. that the... I th my understanding is that it was actually um, likely used in the Manhattan Project for integrals that were important oh. in uh, nuclear weapons. So physicists uh, were very familiar with it. Um, and that involves um, approximating the integral over a probability distribution with the discrete sum under samples under that probability distribution. And MCMC is an approach to... Um, Obtaining those samples through driving a Markov chain to its stationary distribution, where the stationary distribution matches the distribution you have of interest. Mm -hmm. um, and it gives you mechanisms to do that one, which is, I think, a sufficient but not necessarily condition of detailed balance. So there's sort of, um, and it's related, there's, there's, you know, lots of related uh, algorithms like simulated annealing, which you use for optimization. So, um, uh, I think for myself, aesthetically, I sort of went for variational methods as my approximation of choice. The reason being is that um, I, I guess 
my brain wasn't big enough to be expert in both the domains and I had to choose one. <laughs> and also, I happened even back as far back as my PhD thesis, I, I was introduced to these things and I, I just thought the mm. math was very cool. So variational methods are an alternative approach where you try and replace the integral that you're interested in with an optimization. Um, mm. And a particular uh, route we use for that is... Um, something known as Jensen's inequality. So the trick there is to lower bound an integral that is difficult with a integral that um, is more tractable. Um, and then the bound itself can typically be tightened by moving parameters. Okay, so that's, I guess that's broad. I haven't really said, um, much about why why one would choose one or the other apart from you just might choose one if your brain wasn't big enough to understand in depth <laughs> both areas um but i I'd, I'd say um so i remember having a discussion about this long time ago with mark girolami um when we were both working in systems biology and he was doing a lot of mcmc and i was doing a lot of variational hmm. And I think the gist of the conversation was, you know i like variational because the fact that you've got this optimization means that um it's easy to um, uh, see when you're converging and you end up as a side effect of your algorithm often with these lower bounds that reflect something about uh, uh, the true likelihood and you can jointly optimize your lower bound with respect to parameters of the model um, and uh, like parameters that you're not integrating over and the things you're integrating over. I kind of like those things. I think um, the challenge is that you typically are quite constrained in the form of your approximation. So the way you make it tractable is you make assumptions about the posterior distribution. Often independence assumptions, um, but also you make an assumption about perhaps the um, a parametric family of distributions that you say your posterior is. So in, in work I do um, with latent variable models, we make a parametric assumption that the posterior is Gaussian when it's not. And that also happens a lot in uh, the more recent work on neural networks, which are actually very similar to that that we were doing with Gaussian process. And actually, I worked on in my thesis as well, the variational approximations. That's, that's quite a long time ago, um, <laughs> 20 years ago. Variational. I didn't do variational autoencoders. Um, I think that the reason why variational is dominant in neural networks is, well, particularly with the autoencoder, that's a way of in effect reducing the number of variational parameters you need and that allows you to do very very large data mm. i think one challenge when you're doing large data if you've got latent variables you're interested in with mcmc is you have to do samples over many many like if you've got 17 million data and you're doing a variational um, sort of dimensionality reduction algorithm or sort of an unsupervised learning algorithm where you've got latent variables the sampling over those latent variables you need you need, there's many latent variables because there's one for each data point. So the 17 million data, you now got 17 million latent variables. And you don't want one sample at each. So you can sort of s see that there's some issues one needs to deal with. The same thing happens in variational, but the way they deal with that is they parameterize the variational distributions um, from sort of neural networks. And that yeah. seems to be being quite effective. Um, the nice thing about MCMC um, is that you can if you go with it for long enough, you're sort of guaranteed to converge to the right answer. I'm an unbiased estimate 
of the things you're interested in. And that isn't true for these variational things. And so I think that's what Mark would have said in the systems biology days. And certainly we worked on these sort of things together is that if you really believe in the model you've written down and you're really and you're not interested in like its predictive output, you're actually interested in really trying to find out if the model you've written down is the correct one for the data, then MCMC seems to be better because otherwise you can't disentangle, you know, you, you just run it for a really, really, really long time. Uh, there was less data than we're sort of talking about for um, these deep neural networks. Um, but I would say that the, the first most successful of these two, I mean, there's also the Laplace approximation, which David Mackay did, approaches to neural networks was actually um, a Radford Neal with, uh, I think at the time it was hybrid Monte Carlo, or now the Hamiltonian Monte Carlo approaches. And they are really effective. Like the thing I found like, in my own PhD thesis, I was comparing this variational approach I had to neural networks, which I was quite pleased with. In fact, I was doing mixtures of variational distributions. And I made the mistake of comparing him to Radford Neal's out of the box code. Oh uh, no. And it just blew my stuff away. And I never got the thing published because everyone's like, well, you've done all this work on these. I was young and naive and uh, you know, <laughs> actually tried to show all the, which I still try to do today. I, um, but all the authors, all the reviewers didn't like the fact that, um, you know, I was being outperformed by Radford Neal's code. But that I, I'm, I'd be curious for people to do a sort of real study using those techniques um, against the variational approximations in just a one layer neural network because my own feeling is that they they that the variational approximations certainly back in the day when i did it my thesis had severe problems in modeling the correlation between weights and that's often what gives you the interesting uncertainty structure um and that's actually why i moved to gaussian processes sort of whatever 17 years ago because that correlation structure was really, really difficult to capture in the variation approximations. You could capture it in uh, hybrid Monte Carlo, but again, that, that sampling and you need to use, you know, for very large systems, I don't think people are, are using Hamiltonian Monte Carlo, that's what I should say. So I guess part of the answer is horses for courses. If you really, really believe in your probabilistic model, you should be going for HMC or, or Markov chain Monte Carlo of some form. But there's another thing, another twist in that story that I think is very, very interesting was work by Max Welling and UIT and others where they look at, um, and I think this is the way we should be doing everything. I love this work. The, the, the premise of the work, and there's a series of papers according to this premise, is that when we're looking at Markov chain Monte Carlo methods, we're typically trying to prove unbiasedness in the limit as we take a large number of samples, which does sound very nice. But um, actually, you, when you design algorithms that do that, they do so at the, remember, the, sort of bias variance dilemmas. They tend to do so at the expense of variance uh, early on in the sampling. So you've got proof that after many samples you're unbiased, but that sacrifices like early on in your sampling that any estimates you make of any expectations of interest um, have high variance error. And if you sort of say, well, actually, I know I'm compute bounded, so I'm never going to get to this point of unbiasedness anyway, and I'd just like to get close to the answer quicker, then you can start looking at different classes of um, uh, MCMC algorithms. And I think that it's reasonably controversial in the stats community 
but I think it's really cool and absolutely the right approach. I think we should always be trading. It's the right way of thinking. I mean, whether it's the right approach, it's contextual, but it's a great way of thinking. I think we should always be trying to trade off the amount of computation we're prepared to do against the quality of the answer. If you look in Mm -hmm. real world problems, that trade-off is always there. Um, And so so I, I think that that's, I mean, it's interesting. It's Max Welling that also was one of the people involved in variational autoencoders. So, I mean, uh, Max's body of work in this area is is really impressive. Yeah, definitely. So we should ask Max, not me. <laughs> not to my conclusion. Let's get Max on the show and ask him. Well, we'll get an answer. We'll get a straight answer from Max Welling. If you've got a question for Talking Machines, you can email us at thetalkingmachines at gmail.com or tweet us at TLKNGMCHNS. This week's guest on Talking Machines is Andrew Blake. He's research director at the Alan Turing Institute. And we got a chance to sit down with him when he was at the event that we visited a couple of weeks ago at the American Academy that was also put on by the Royal Society. And the first question we asked him, like we ask everybody all the time, is how did you get where you are? Professor Blake, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with us on Talking Machines. You can call me Andrew. Okay, all right, fantastic. All right, Andrew. Yes. Um, so uh, we asked everyone the same question first yes. when they come and sit down for an interview. How did you get where you are? What's been oh. your academic journey? Oh, well, it's been uh, quite a complicated journey, and it wasn't all academic. So um, I guess I let's think about this. I started out as a mathematician, mm-hmm. studying mathematics as an undergraduate. And then I kind of got this idea that I'd had enough of what seemed like man-made things. I Mm. wanted to look at sort of, you know, real physical things. So I switched to engineering and uh, finished off my degree in engineering and I worked on uh, lasers. I made my own carbon dioxide laser. It was very exciting. very nice. I spent many afternoons in the lab trying to get this thing to work. And and then I went to um, MIT for a year, Mm. just down the road from where we are Mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. And that was a bit of an accident. I applied for a scholarship Um, without ever thinking that I might end up getting it. And indeed, to begin with, they wrote and said, sorry, you didn't get it. And I was greatly relieved (laughs) because now I can uh, just stay home. And um, but then somebody dropped out. And actually, after all, you did get it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God, now now I've got to go. (laughs) And that was really uh, a lot of fun. I worked on semiconductor lasers there. I had not at the time heard of artificial intelligence, which is what I've ended up working on. But I met the first um, first person I'd ever met who worked on AI, he said, and I, I actually asked him if that was artificial insemination, <laughs> which was all I knew at the time. And um, But no, he, of course, the MIT was a great place to do AI at the time, but mm-hmm. I have to say it had no influence on me whatsoever. Mm. I went back to the electronic engineering department and got on with my lasers. Very um, nice. But then I went back to Edinburgh to work on more lasers, and while I was there, I started working on a Um, a study of how you might navigate helicopters using cameras and Mm. how the cameras actually I suppose I never thought of this but it's sort of like the a very early predecessor of what we now call slam where uh, you know cameras are used to navigate but these were sort of special cameras Mm because you couldn't deal with the data from a a regular Regular camera camera. at that time so it was a special camera with a kind of slit shaped Ah. aperture 
And as I was working on that, I thought, well, actually, I could do this kind of thing in a university. Maybe oh. it would be better to do this in a university than I could choose right. what to look at. And what. So I moved to Edinburgh University, which was, oh. um, of course, that was the same city. And uh, they were, um, you know, they, I, I looked up, you know, in the library what had been happening in artificial intelligence, saw that Edinburgh got mentioned a lot and thought, nice. oh, this could be an interesting... And I ended up working with... Um, a certain Donald Meeky, mm -hmm. who was oh, wow. who in turn worked for Alan Turing. Yes. So I'm kind of in intellectual grandchild of uh, of Alan Turing. And two degrees of Turing. Two I love degrees it. of Turing, exactly. It's sort of <laughs> vertical. Uh, so he had um, a machine perception laboratory at mm. the time, and he wanted somebody to come and do the vision part of what he sort of saw as his AI program. Mm -hmm. So I, I went there and did my doctorate and. Uh, that's how I got started on a career of doing computer vision, which I then did for the next, uh, let me think about this, well, uh, it's, it's 38 years, I guess, um, <laughs> to the present day, um, with a few breaks to do other things like running laboratories. And you were at Microsoft for a time, is that correct? I was at Microsoft, so after I was at Edinburgh, did the PhD, was a, an academic in Edinburgh, mm -hmm. like a lecturer for a short time, then I went to Oxford, mm -hmm. and I was a professor in Oxford up till, um, what was it, 99? And then the uh, people who were building up the Microsoft lab, Roger Needham was the, the head at the time, sent me a characteristic one-line email, uh, <laughs> the kind of guy he was, saying, have you ever thought of working for us? <laughs> That's all it said, no, nothing more. Fantastic. And I, I never had thought of working for them because it never crossed my mind that, that Microsoft would want to do anything as crazy right. as computer vision. Because yeah. it really didn't work at the time, not at all, hmm. not even close. I mean, uh, the work I did in my thesis... Each image that I experimented on took 24 hours to compute. Mm. And you come back the next day, hope the computer had run uh, without crashing all that time and, uh, and sort of see what had cooked. Right. So that didn't seem like anything that you could, you know, put into a product. I mean, <laughs> you know, um, Windows 95 or something. I mean, are you going to put? No. But then while I was in Oxford, uh, I guess, you know, it got steadily more practical. And by the time I was nearly finished in Oxford, then we were building programs that could react to visual mm. stimuli mm -hmm. um, in real time, not, you know, from 24 hours to right. a tenth of a second or right. something. I mean, and the first thing that we did that, that, that did that was a very simple program. We had a robot, a rather beautiful and serious robot with a camera in its hand mm. that it could move around to mm. kind of look at the world. And um, we wrote the simplest program that you held up a, a white, a rolled up sheet of paper in front of it to move the piece of paper around. And, and it the tracks would you. And, Oh my oh. God, that was so exciting. <laughs> Can't believe how, what, what a moment that really, you know, sends a shiver down your spine. Yeah. <gasps> it's reacting to me kind of thing. You think, uh, so, so life created in the Great. test tube sort of yeah. thing. I know we were a long way from artificial intelligence, but it felt like something very special. And then we got the... Um, a special kind of computer called the transputer that was hot at the time mm. and that allowed you to do parallel computing. So mm. that is, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, getting the effort of several computers all on one task. That was another way of speeding things up. And at that point, things were beginning to look, you know, more sophisticated and we, um, uh, we were able to track um, outlines of hands and uh, faces and that kind of thing. And so we built the first program, I think, that allowed you to manipulate things, sorry, in virtual reality. So ah. you can move your hand, and, um, very and the crude. Representation would move. You move your hand and the representation inside the computer would move. And so you could wow. use it to nudge something or pick something up. It was very, as I say, very crude by today's standards, but 
you know, you kind of saw the the potential of it, and 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 also the the theory of it was very engaging. We uh, Michael Izard was my uh, one of my co-workers at the time, and we wrote a book together about you know what we learned about how to track the outline of a hand and um, how to use ideas from probability in computing to make all that happen. Wow. So that was very exciting. So at that point, you know. Uh, and I was on sabbatical also when Roger Needham wrote this email. Mm, mm. And so that, that made me quite receptive to the idea of, uh, <laughs> well, maybe I don't, won't go back to teaching then. And, um, uh, so I thought, well, yeah, Microsoft, if they're willing to take the punt. Yeah, yeah. And I also was thinking, I think I was age, what, 40? Let me think about this, 42 at the time. Mm. So I was thinking, well... Shall I be a don for the next 23 years <laughs> and gently sliding into retirement or is there something else? that? And so the idea of going to work for Microsoft and doing something, mm. there was one other thing as well, which was that my colleagues at the time, wonderful people in engineering who all went on to do pretty amazing things, um, were all starting up companies. Yeah. And, and it wasn't that common at the time. I mean, it's much mm. more common now. But And I thought, well, this is impressive. They're, you know, really going to get some stuff done. Yeah. Um, one of them was Hugh Durrant-White, who is now the chief scientist at um, MOD. Yeah, yeah. He's just, he's just come into that job. So uh, he was great at uh, starting companies. And also my colleague, Lionel Tarasenko, who's mm. now head of department in engineering, the, the department I was in. Mm -hmm. uh, and they, they were very active on, on this kind of thing and uh, but I thought I'm not sure that I wanted to divert my energy mm. into running a company because mm -hmm. I liked inventing things so the idea of being in somebody else's company where they had these great channels for kind of taking your stuff and 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 sending it out to yeah. people to use that seemed very appealing yeah and I was very interested at the time also in photography and photoshop mm. and uh, I remember visiting the studio of a a graphic uh, of a graphic artist who was using Photoshop and him explaining how amazing this was. And I thought, oh, you know, that's something we could do with yeah. vision. We could, you know, in, instead of just by hand adjusting pictures to make them more beautiful, we could actually have the computer kind of in the loop and uh, understanding what it's looking at a bit and intervening a bit. And maybe we could do something with that. And, and actually that happened. <laughs> so uh, yeah. in 2004, um, my colleagues... Karsten Rotha and Vladimir Kolmogorov and I invented a program which we called GrabCut at the mm -hmm, time, mm -hmm. which was able to take the subject of a picture and kind of extract it automatically. Sometimes you didn't have to do anything at all. Other times you had to give it a bit of a nudge. Right. And the, the subject of the picture would kind of float off mm. like a transfer. You can imagine, you know, those, uh, uh, and, and you could slide it onto something else yeah. and put it in a new context. And um, so that seemed very interesting. It, it took, you know, this is what corporations are like, it did actually take six more years before it emerged in a product. Right. Um, but it did. It, it became part of Office. Mm -hmm. And um, you, it, it's called Background Removal in Office. It's still there. Mm -hmm. And they, it, it was in everything in Office because it's easier to put in, every, in everything than just one of the things. So right. it's actually in Excel. No. I'm not quite sure how you would use it in Excel, but it was sort of easier to put it in it's the there. It's there. It's an option. But in PowerPoint, it, it, it's wonderful. And yeah. I use it all the time. And, Fantastic. And uh, Word, of course. So that was exciting. And um, we were also very interested in communication and, and um, kind of what technology would you need to allow you really to work from home mm -hmm. and to be quite 
effective and comfortable yeah. working from home. And the, uh, you know, Microsoft was um, very busy on the communications technology. Uh, net meeting, I think it was called at the time, was mm. the, the, the Skype-like thing that eventually, of course, they bought Skype um, that would allow you to connect with somebody else and, and do a meeting. And we thought, well, what would it take to make this more compelling? Mm. And, of course, there are, there are all kinds of things. I mean, it's, uh, there, are, there are silly, annoying, practical things like how long it takes to get connected up and right. sometimes it just won't do it and, and you, you'd like it to be seamless. But I, and I thought that was important, but I didn't think I could really help with that. That mm. was sort of more in the realm of the sort of systems yeah. uh, experts that, of course, Microsoft had those too. But we did think there was this perennial problem of when you look at somebody on Skype, they're not looking at you. Yeah. Because yeah. the camera's there. The camera, and they're the here. problem. Yes. Yeah. So the, the gaze correction problem yeah. was difficult. And we thought, well, we would try and solve that in various ways. And, and we ended up with, and with various colleagues trying various different things. Some were kind of neat parlor tricks, mm. a little bit like the kind of... Um, Shifts. Now, what's the name of the... There's that mirror that they the Victorians used to use oh, on stage. Yeah, I've yeah, to like project a sort of a ghostly yes, shape, exactly. and then you have that magic trick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pepper, Pepper I think. It is. Yes, Pepper's, Pepper's ghost. ghost. Yes, Pepper's ghost. That one. Yes. So we, we tried some tricks a bit like that, and uh, uh, and and some other things to do with um, uh, switching displays on mm. and off very quickly, so mm -hmm. that sometimes you could see through them and sometimes you couldn't. Mm. And um, we call that the Fokker interrupter <laughs> because that's what they. Um, uh, that's what they call the method that allows you right. that first allow you to shoot a machine gun out of a um, out of a fighter plane. You could, if you're not careful, you shoot the the the, um, the blades off of the, the propeller. Blade. Yeah. So it was all synchronized. So you shot always between the blades of the propeller. It's a little bit like that. Very careful timing. Yeah. Um, those were the kind of parlor trick approaches, but we also worked on using stereo vision to do it, and mm. that was what we really spent a lot of time on. Was could we get stereo vision? good enough yeah because your stereo vision actually gives you what the psychologist called a cyclopean eye hmm. which is an eye that uh, is like in the uh, middle of your head actually yes. focused here do you see out of this eye the right eye do you see out of the left eye mm -hmm. no you see effectively out of the cyclopean the eye the one in the middle yeah. so that suggests that humans are able to kind of use stereo vision to move mm. the virtual camera around and we mm -hmm. thought well if if humans can do it, perhaps we can do it with the computer. And we worked a lot on that, and we mm. got things working, and they were perhaps still not quite good enough because it's very difficult to do it in a flawless way. And yeah. Of course, people are very sensitive about how faces appear. Right. And if it weren't faces, perhaps we would have got away with the, the level of quality, but um, we were sort of striving for very high levels of quality. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that was a very interesting sort of uh, uh, research series. And then finally we got onto this problem of the Kinect camera mm, mm -hmm. and how to automatically see the human body. So right. this was, in a way, harking back to the work we'd done all that time ago with the hand, right. back in Oxford, even with Michael Izzard, and how would you see the outline of the hand, but now scaled up to be the whole body. Right. And, of course, not only was it the whole body, that's, that makes it you know, maybe 10 or 20 times harder, but also... It's got a sort of slot in to um, a computer that's being used to play games. So right. you can only use a tiny fraction of the computer right. to do this job. So we probably had to be, you know, 20 times better for the complexity, 20 times better for fitting into the box, yeah. maybe 400 times better overall. Yeah. Um, since we'd, but of course, also, it was 10 years later. Right, or, yeah, right. Yes. So we, we stood a chance. And um, anyway, that was a very interesting story. And our, our technology ended up 
being part of the Xbox Kinect camera oh, that shipped to, um, you know, I believe, but I don't have the figures, I believe it was around 50 million people yeah. that bought one. So again, you know, sort of quite nice to... So we were on, we were on you know, a, a few hundred million desktops with the, <laughs> the cutting out the, the background removal and on maybe 50 million in 50 million dens yeah. uh, with, um, with the Kinect camera. That was um, a very exciting time. And the, the solution was very exciting too. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah. the, the way it worked in the end was not at all the way I had thought it worked uh, would work. And um, uh, I remember you know, many interesting discussions where I was trying to extrapolate from what we'd done before to, mm-hmm. okay, how would that work now? How could you scale it up? And um, actually Toshiba had done some very interesting work, hmm. which was kind of our starting point, and I thought we would be able to take that further. But then Jamie Shotton, mm. who led the work, who was on my team, um, wanted to try a completely different way, which was much more the modern artificial intelligence approach, where mm. he took each limb of the body mm. and um, treated each bit of each limb as if it was an object. Right. So he'd already done some work on object recognition. Very simple stuff compared with what we do now, but it was sort of the best of its type at the time, mm-hmm. uh, using decision trees instead of the neural networks, which mm. everyone is using at the moment. Mm-hmm. And he was able to recognize with his colleagues um, maybe 20 different types of object and to do it, you know, with reasonable reliability. Yeah. So kind of grass, road, sheep, cows, that kind of thing. Right. And um, so that was working. And so he wanted to do that, treat each bit of the body as if it was, you know, rather like the sheep and the cows and the... Yeah. And if you can find a conglomeration of all of these things sort yes. of in the right time, sort of fitting generally the right shape, then that's yes. like most of a human. Yes. And it, it was always supposed to be the first step. Mm-hmm. So it would kind of get you in the right frame. Right. Everything the right way up. Um, and then when you've done that, you'd have to refine it by having mm-hmm. a, a much tighter fitting model. Right. right a bit right. like a tailor's dummy, you know, those uh, or the life drawing dummies that you can where you can adjust all the limbs. Yeah. To the, so we, we thought of it a bit like that. In fact, um, um, some friends in Oxford had given me one of these uh, <laughs> dummy uh, dummies from their toy shop as a as a present. Nice. And um, uh, Nick and Caroline Cooper. And I, I kept it in my. Uh, in my um, office as oh, an inspiration, <laughs> but you know, we ended up with the, the program had these two phases. There was mm. the the recognition phase, mm-hmm. the decision trees, and then the tailor's dummy to mm. refine right. what you'd done, and that was the thing that worked in the, in the end. And, <gasps> and and as I often say, one of my main contributions was to tell Jamie that his approach with the recognition would never work. Because uh, if you do that to some young researcher, well, you know, they're definitely going to make it work. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah, right, exactly, exactly. I can't claim that that was my strategy. It's just, <laughs> but that's what happened. But it worked out in the end. Yes. And then in 2000, I believe it was 2015, you left to direct the, the Alan Turing Institute. Is yes, that and at that point I'd been director of the Microsoft Lab for five years. Mm-hmm. And um, then the Alan Turing opportunity came up and in fact I was part of the sort of design team as well for the Alan Turing so I was on the EPSRC is the government body that handles funding for research and computing amongst other things and they had the task of sort of designing the the Alan Turing Institute and you know this uh, kind of um, request came down from the prime minister himself the famous letter with the promise of 42 million to get the thing started then they advertised for a director and something must have snapped in my head. And I thought, well, why shouldn't I apply for that? So, and, you know, I'd, I'd had a lot of fun in Microsoft. and It had been a fascinating time. And I thought, well, maybe I can uh, apply some of the insights that 
that came from running the Microsoft lab to oh, of course, yeah. founding a new lab. And uh, we had a bit of a summer program in 2016, but then the doors really swung open in, uh, um, in the autumn of uh, 2016. And that was when students were coming and the um, Turing Fellows, as we now call them, um, who are the kind of professors from the founding un uh, f uh, the, the member universities came along, mm -hmm. um, and we we appointed research fellows who are kind of in the middle of their careers, mm -hmm. who would be based in the Turing and uh, do research across the spread of data science. Which of course we haven't actually said that, have we? But right, that's right. that's what the Turing Institute does and what it was found to do, um, uh, which is to be the national institute for data science. Uh, and now, actually, something very interesting has happened, which is the the British government has kind of switched on to artificial intelligence mm -hmm. and they decided this is a big thing. And uh, um, Wendy Hall and uh, Jerome Pazenti were commissioned to write this report on what's the potential of artificial intelligence, what do we need to do to make it happen, and then that report has been taken into the industrial strategy. So that finally, the, the final version came out in November, uh, last November, and uh, AI is a major plank. There are yeah. there are four major um, major technologies that are um, highlighted in the in the industrial strategy. To say, okay, these are the things that are going to drive um, growth and productivity um, in, uh, in the um, uh, short and medium term. And AI is one of those four, yeah. which is an amazing Incredible. kind of advance for uh, from a, a kind of a piece of craziness. I have to tell you that you know my PhD is actually in artificial intelligence. Mm. I mean, that's that's its formal thing. And you know Edinburgh University was one of the few universities back in '83 when yeah, I got my, yeah. uh, that was doing PhD. And you know I, I kept quiet about that because uh, <laughs> you know it was the AI winter at the time. Mm, you didn't mm, really. Mm, mm, uh, and uh, you know I haven't boasted about. I, I'm more likely to say. My PhD is in computer science, but mm. but now in the last five years I've been able to come out and uh, <laughs> and uh, say yes, I have a PhD in artificial intelligence. So anyway, artificial intelligence is uh, part of the recommendation of the of the Hall Pazenti report was that the Alan Turing Institute should also be the National Institute for Artificial Intelligence. Yeah, and so that's very new and how that that pans out is, is all to be explored. Right. So already in the short existence of the Institute, you've seen almost a sea change, or what I think most other institutes would consider a sea yeah. change, having another another directive added to your mission. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's a big thing. You don't redefine uh, an institute right. uh, every day. And of course, you know, it's only been running for, yeah. uh, you know, between two and three years. So that it's, um, yes, that's quite a big thing. And um, But... You know, we've already got the work in data science pretty well established mm, and mm -hmm. various, the various sectors that we're going to, um, uh, that we're going to be uh, working hard on have begun to define, have mm -hmm. be defined. So, mm -hmm. we, for example, we're very keen to work alongside government mm -hmm. and uh, particularly security and um, GCHQ and MOD um, are major funders and, and we've, we've been hard at work with them kind of defining a program. We also have another very interesting organization, which is Lloyd's Register Foundation, hmm. which is, um, this is not Lloyd's Insurance, uh, nor yet Lloyd's Register, which is, used to be Lloyd's Register of Shipping, uh -huh. that is um, a certification 
business that right. will uh, look at risk in large projects and uh, um, certify the level of risk, which then feeds into the insurance industry. But the profit from that business goes into the Lloyd's Register Foundation. Mm. And, uh, and they have a number of, um, of uh, charitable aims which they, uh, uh, which they dispense. And w- one of them that they're pursuing with us is um, data-centric engineering. Hmm. So they're very interested in safety of uh, engineering infrastructure. And, um, and so the thesis is that bringing data science into defining safe infrastructure will make a big difference. Yeah. And so we, uh, we have um, Mark Girolami, um, who's a, also a professor at um, Imperial, is um, the uh, program director for that program. Mm-hmm. And uh, already very interesting things are happening. Uh, one of them is they, they've got involved in the first um, 3D printed footbridge. Oh, wow. Which is going in in Amsterdam. And huh. there's, um, uh, the, the company that's doing that has linked up with the Turing to do some of the analysis of the, um, of the kind of the stresses and strains in this mm-hmm. uh, strange structure. Cambridge University also involved. Um, so, you know, there are, there are just all these opportunities to do um, quite new things that bring data into engineering in a very rich way. That's so fantastic. It sounds fascinating. And you were, were here at the American Academy, and yeah. you were part of uh, the organizing team for this, this two-day session, seminar, workshop, yeah. about the future of work. So, so tell me about how you became involved in that and, and its yeah. growth and, and what you've gotten out of it. Yeah, well, it's been a very interesting and surprising session. I mean, it, this is actually not what I spend my time doing a lot. I mean, uh, uh, recently I've got involved in self-driving cars mm. and I've got back to designing algorithms again, which I kind of wasn't doing while I was busy running institutions. Right, right. And, um, um, and th- that has been fascinating. But the opportunity to think more broadly about these kinds of technologies uh, seem very interesting. And the Royal Society have kind of set things up beautifully. They've done this machine learning report that came out um, nearly a year ago. And, um, you know, a lot of thinking has gone in from the, from the society and its fellows and lots of other people have come in to contribute to the implications of machine learning mm-hmm. technology and, mm-hmm. uh, and how it plays into artificial intelligence. And so um, the opportunity to come and talk to a much broader set of people. I mean, we've had economists here we've had um social scientists i mean uh people who go out and do field work of various kinds <laughs> in how let's say the gig economy is working we've mm-hmm. heard quite a, quite a lot about the gig economy and, mm-hmm. and actually the discussions we've ended up having have been really very much about the the shape of society yeah and um uh, they've been very positive actually which which also i've enjoyed because sometimes there's a, a lot of um, breast beating goes on around yeah. discussions about AI and about the use of personal data. And of course, you know, you can do that, but I think we've, we've done that now. Yeah. The, <laughs> yeah. the breast, time to be more constructive and more mm. creative. Mm-hmm. And um, um, to think about, I mean, something which I was beginning to feel and which has been very much reinforced, I think, by this meeting is that there's this whole cr- uh, cloud of people from the, from the diverse disciplines mm-hmm. who've got a lot to say mm-hmm. about how technology embeds in society and how society reacts to it and so on. But their role normally is the role of the critic. Mm-hmm. So somebody invents something, they release it on the world, maybe 
um, you know, gig economy for taxis right. uh, is one of the things that uh, has been released on the world. And then the broader disciplines get to react to that and right. say, uh, you know, what what they think is good and what they think is not so good and what could be different. But I think a very interesting um, challenge and idea is to get those people involved much sooner mm. as part of the kind of experimental process. I'm used to the idea of bringing de- designers in, and I already had begun to do that at Microsoft in the, in the lab, um, hiring designers who um, think about the purpose of what you're doing before yeah. you actually do it. Yeah. It's sort of a very, I mean, you'd think that, <laughs> was, you'd think that was obvious, but I mean, it, it isn't actually. Right. Um, it isn't actually a habit of the industry. Mm-hmm. Some companies get it. I guess most famously Apple gets mm, it. I mean, mm-hmm. they, they didn't go into research in a big way. Um, but they did invest in design, and yeah. you know who, uh, that's worked very well for them. Right, um, um, has produced beautiful products, and um, that kind of thinking, and of course, what design means can also be quite broad. It's not just about physical design, or even just about human computer interface. It's also about kind of system design. So, uh, you know. Um, the famous design houses like IDEO, right. they don't just design beautiful things. They right. will come into your business almost doing a little bit what management consultants do and say, well, like, what is it you're trying to achieve? And, Form and you know, how does the human, yeah. How does the human system work? What's the flow of, right. of, of information and of tasks? And, and so that kind of um, you know, broad thinking about what you want to achieve and what, what will actually help people rather than producing a widget and say, oh, hey, okay, guys, go and play with that. Right, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, that really appeals to me. Yeah. But I, I think perhaps it could be done at even more breadth mm. that you get um, sociologists and historians and economists in to think a uh, brainstorm about um, technology before you start to get specific. And uh, uh, I don't know, how, you know, it'd be very interesting to try that and see how well it works. I mean, you know, the, the, the process of invention mm. is a bit disorderly. Mm-hmm. So it's quite hard to sort of say you'll... Um, uh, sort of have a series of steps you know first we consider society then we kind of look more at the system because the, the way systems really develop is more chaotic you, right. it's experimental the, you know the, the things inevitable. we're seeing now that are most successful that are most transformative are quite experimental we see many versions of everybody's um, mobile phone system come out and you know sometimes changes are made and the whole population groans why did you wreck that it was perfectly good right and sometimes they get used to it and decide they like it after all other times it gets withdrawn and you know we're all part of a big experiment and um it, it is as i say necessarily disorderly definitely excellent andrew thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today this has been fantastic great to talk to you Andrew Blake, Research Director at the Alan Turing Institute. It was amazing to be able to talk with him about all the changes that have gone on at the Turing Institute and their recent expansion, but then also just like hearing about his work in computer vision and just have him sort of nonchalantly talk about doing all these super fundamental things was a real treat. Yeah, no, he's um, uh, he's been a mainstay of the UK's computer vision, ML, AI, whatever community uh for a number of years and uh, always very friendly and uh, someone that I've, I've known for a long time. In fact, he lives around the corner from me now in Cambridge. Oh. And so <laughs> I get to see him uh, quite regularly, but it's always great to hear from him and, and his insights and the, the different places have been Oxford, Microsoft Research, um, and now the Alan Institute. Yeah, definitely. Well, that's it for us this week on Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. Tune in next episode. Mm-hmm.